Good morning. Thanks, Jordan. Would you stand and open your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 2? Last week, we took a look at a New Testament character named Zacchaeus who is living in the new city of Jericho. This week, we turn back a couple thousand years and look at another character who was living in the old Jericho before it came down under Joshua. So uh, follow along with me. Joshua chapter 2, we'll read almost to the end of the chapter. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot who was named Rahab and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. The king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all of the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them to the roof of her house and hidden them in stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver their lives from death, our lives from death, rather. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. She said to them, Go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourself there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we shall, flee from, we shall be free from this oath to you which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread into the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the door of this house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and, if we, and we shall be free. 
But anyone who is with you in this house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would deal with our hearts as you dealt with Rahab. I pray that as you put fear and hope and faith into the heart of this Canaanite, that you would do so with us as well. It's the humble that you choose to use to exalt for your purposes, and so we pray that you would take away our pride so that it would be by your power that mightily works within us that we have our being, that we live by, that we go through each day with. May it not be our power, but yours. Be with my words and all of our thoughts together as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, this is a, an interesting chapter. Because in it, we see the beginning of a, recog- uh, of, of a new phase of God's promise. A few weeks ago, we talked about Abraham. And we learned that Abraham had promised certain things to him from God. God had spoken to Abraham and promised him a seed, offspring, and land to dwell in land to sustain that offspring. And then there's many, many years that elapse between the time that God gave that promise to Abraham and the time where Israel, Abraham's seed, begins to get into the land that was promised and they, and they live in that promise. Now God's promise was true the whole time, but because of sin and other things, it didn't come as quickly as it might have. And so this chapter is a threshold chapter. God's people, Abraham's children, are after many years just crossing over and starting to get into that land that was once promised to them. It's a threshold chapter. And at this threshold, at this very point, we meet this character, Rahab. And what I want us to learn from her this morning is I want us to learn something of her hope. I want to speak to you this morning about hope, many of us have things that we hope for. How many of you have something in your mind that you hope for right now? Something that you might be longing for in your heart and in your mind? Okay, many of us. Mostly it was the adults that raised their hands, and, uh, but children have many hopes too. And what I've recognized as a parent is that actually children's hopes are far greater than our hopes as adults often. Often It seems as if, as we get older, our hopes can get hemmed in by things that we call the realities of life. And the extent of our hope, the reach of our hope, the color of our hope, the vibrancy of our hopes become dimmed by our own maybe experiences. They become jaded by the things that we think are inevitable. To illustrate this, I, I don't have any illustration other than the common stuff that happens in life. It's my day off. 
I wake up, I'm lying in bed. What do I hope? What's the hope for my day? I hope we have Greek yogurt in the refrigerator. It's probably not there. I think Lucia threw it on the floor and it broke open two days ago. I don't think Aliyah's gone to Kroger since then. That's how I wake up. That's my hope. What am I going to hope? I hope I can cut the, the, the hedges with the hedge trimmer today. That would be a good day. I hope. You know. Okay, what do my children hope? You ever ask your kids, what do you want to do today? You ever ask them that question? What do you want to do today, Lucia? Go on vacation! Let's go to Washington! What do you want to do today? Let's go to Cedar Point! Their hopes are so much bigger and more vibrant. And there is something to living in reality, although what we need to recognize is that the life of faith is the life where every possibility that is in God's will is wide open to us. It's just flayed open before us. And what often keeps us from doing and living things that are grand and glorious is not God's willingness, but our hope for those things themselves and our pursuit of that hope. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so this morning I want to speak to us about hope, and I, I, I really am speaking to all of us, but I'm especially speaking to the young and and I want to call you to hope in God. I want to call you to hope in God in big ways, in great ways, in ways that seem unreasonable, in ways that may seem to other people as unfathomable. They don't understand the hope that you have. They don't understand that internal reality that motivates the way that you live. But God calls us to have hope, and the story of Rahab is a story that illustrates that. Now, we're going to get to hope. We've got to talk about fear first. But I want to start causing us to look at the passage together. Look down at verse 1. Verse 1 is, is, is like, unlike most of my teaching. He gets an incredible amount done in one verse. Verse 1 says, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two spies secretly into Shittim, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they came went into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now, he sent out two spies secretly instructing them, go view the land, especially Jericho. So what's going on here? What's going on is what your intuition might suggest to you. Joshua is getting ready for conquest. This is a calculating move. He's sending out spies to sort of survey what they're going to go in to possess, to attack, to conquer Joshua is eyeing up the land, the land that God had said, I will give to you and your descendants after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. So these two spies do as they're told, and since their commander had told them to pay special attention to Jericho, a, a, a drive-by surveillance won't do. They bravely pass through the gates of the city, the gates of a city whose leaders we already know because of what Rahab says at the end, a city whose leaders are living in terror and fear of the Israelites, a city whose leaders and soldiers are probably on high alert for what might be happening. These two spies 
go into the gate, and they pass through the city, and by the end of verse 1, we're told that they come to the house of a harlot. A harlot is a prostitute, and they lodge there. Now, how they found her and why they decided to lodge there in the first place are questions that the Bible does not seek to answer for us. There may be those, there are those that speculate that Rahab owned an inn, like a motel, and this is why they would logically make their way there. This may be in part, this view may be in part to shield the spies from accusations around why they would seek out a heart, uh, the home of a prostitute. On the other hand, there is in the story no mention of Rahab operating an inn or a motel, and there's no mention of anyone else being at the motel who might see what was going on inside. Additionally, if you were spying out a city, you would likely seek shelter in the company of somebody like a prostitute, someone who has a lifestyle of deception and secrecy, somebody who may have enemies in the city themselves and so something to lose, somebody who might be able to tell a bold-faced lie. We aren't told of any of the exchange between these two spies and Rahab when they initially enter her house. All we are told is that they lodge there. And by verse 2, we see that the king of this city, the king of Jericho, has received a tip-off about these spies coming in. They must have looked suspicious at the gate. Somebody must have noticed them and followed them as they made their way and meandered through the streets to probably the edge of the city because we're told she lived in the wall, not the center of the city, the edge of the city. So somebody was probably following them and saw them enter her house and then went to the king and told him. And by the second verse of this chapter, we're told that the king immediately sent word to Rahab. That's pretty quick. Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. Now, notice what he doesn't do. The king does not ask if these men did in fact come to her. He tells her that he knows that they did come to her and that they entered her house. He knows both those things. He also tells her why they came. He says they've come into the land to spy it out. And so there's no way for Rahab to claim naivety here. There's just absolutely no way she can claim ignorance about the situation. There's no way that she could continue to house those spies, but then to insist later that she didn't really recognize what was happening. She didn't realize the threat. She is being told by the king that the king knows that they're there in her home, that they've, they've come there and that they've entered, and the king has said, here is why they have done so. She has no claim on naivety here. And at this point, Rahab, the prostitute, the Canaanite, has a significant decision to make. Will she lead the king's messengers up to the roof and expose the spies, therefore bringing at least temporary deliverance, at least being a temporary con uh, 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 source of hope to her city? What will she do? Will this woman who has made her income by selling herself gain honor by selling out the Israelites, 
that stayed with her. What will she do? Well, she doesn't sell them out. Amazingly, she lies. She responds to the king by openly acknowledging that they came to her, presumably for her services. Again, she says that they left before dark. So the idea that they came seeking just an inn doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you go to a hotel and then right before dark decide you're not going to stay? It's just illogical. She says that they came, but that they left just before dark. And it came about when they shut the gate that the men went out, and I don't know where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Reminds you of the words that that uh, Delilah said to Samson, go out quickly after them, you will surely overtake them. Lies. Lies. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, remember the river. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Disaster diverted. But why? Why would Rahab have chosen to lie? Why would if she committed treason, why would she risk everything that she had for the sake of harboring a couple of foreign spies whom she had never met in her life? I want you to think about the reality of what's happening here. With these stories, we read them. For those of us that grew up in the church, we read them most of our lives, and I think we often don't really grapple with the weight of what's going on. So I want you to think about why she would do what she just did. What, what reason does she have? She's putting everything on the line, and for what? The answer to this question is first, that Rahab feared God. She feared the God of Israel. Imagine opening that doorway and looking across that threshold into the face of the king's messenger and likely the guards that were with him staring back at you. Imagine being told that they know foreign spies came to your house and entered. And if you were totally innocent, you'd be afraid. You know how I know you'd be afraid? Because my father and mother-in-law are here and they served the police department their whole lives as cops and detectives. And... um, When I pass by a police officer, you know what I do? I I try to go the speed limit. You know what I do? Aaliyah makes fun of me all the time for this. I start going like this. On the steering wheel. It doesn't matter if I could be going 10 miles under the speed limit. And if I drive by a police officer that I don't see, my thumb just starts going like this. Because I get nervous. Oh, am I going over this? Oh, you know, it's just a reaction. It's this sort of internal reaction that I can't stop. And uh, she always makes fun. <laughs> she always makes fun of me for it. You're like that too. When 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 there's a potential threat, even if we're not going over the speed limit, even if we're innocent, often we get nervous. Rahab is not innocent. You understand. I'd be nervous, you'd be nervous, she'd be nervous if she was innocent. You've got these guards coming at you from the king. She was guilty. She's guilty. She's lied. They say, let us search your house. Uh Uh-oh. Did you do a good enough job scattering the, the, the stalks of flax on the roof? 
do they, those guys up on the roof, know that the house is going to be searched? And might they decide to sort of like adjust their leg or sneeze? Like, did any of the neighbors happen to see you burying two men in a bunch of corn stalks on the roof? These are the questions that would be going through her mind. She, she's nervous. She's got to be fearful of the situation she was in. But for all the fear she might have experienced and had to have been experiencing of being found out by those guards, the fear that went deeper into her soul was the fear of the God of Israel. This is why she sheltered the spies. This is why she lied to her king with significant risk to herself. Significant isn't even a good word because she risked everything. She would have been killed. She feared the God she had never seen. She feared the God she had really little to no experience with more than she feared the king of her city. She feared the wrath of God more than she feared what the king's torturers might do to her if she was found out. She feared the judgment of God. She says that later in the chapter. She says, I and the entire city are living in terror of the God of Israel. Now, what we'll see is that there is a difference between her fear and the, people's, the rest of the people's fear. But she has a, a visceral fear of God here, which causes her to lie. And I want to say to you, fear of God is appropriate. It's right for there to be fear in your heart when you think about the king of glory, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the great I am, the God who says that he is a consuming fire. King David says in the Psalms that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. David means that we've been fashioned in a manner by God, created by him, in a wonderful way and in a way that is calculated. You are made in a way that is calculated to incite, excite rather, both fear and admiration of God. This is true whenever we encounter God because he is holy and just and righteous altogether and we are not. We are sinners and our sins have offended God. All of mankind is in the same predicament that Rahab found herself in. She faced the certain judgment of God, and therefore she was afraid. Now, this is true for a Canaanite prostitute who's not come to know God, but we recognize that this is also true to a great extent. Not, not, not just visceral fear, but real fear is true to an extent with those that love God and know him and have been walking with him. You think about... You think about the deliverer Moses who was raised up to deliver God's people, and when he comes before that bush, it's a scene of he's afraid of God because he comes to grip with two realities. One, who he is and what he lacks. And two, the holiness and the righteousness of God. Another famous passage of this is the prophet Isaiah who has spent years declaring the word of the Lord and the example of the Lord to the nation of Israel. And in his vision, when he sees the Lord high up and lifted, lifted high and exalted, he falls down. And he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. This, isn't, this is a prophet, not a prostitute. 
And yet there's this fear. We're told in the New Testament, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So this idea of fear is true with Rahab as a prostitute and somebody who doesn't know the Lord, but it, it also abides in the life of somebody who comes to know God. Why? Because God is still righteous and holy. And even though we have Christ covering us, we still sin against him every day. And that reality should cause fear in us. Fear that doesn't cause us to despair, but should push us toward hope. And that's where we're going to go. Fear is appropriate and necessary. Proverbs teaches us that fear is the beginning of wisdom. But remember that it's the beginning of wisdom and not the end. That's the thing we have to remember. Fear of God is where wisdom begins, but it's not the totality of wisdom. For instance, some of my children have been afraid of getting into the water. And when you're young, an innate fear of jumping into the water is a good one. Fear of falling in prematurely is wisdom. But the goal should not be to forever avoid the water. No, we would hope that fear of falling into the water would produce a response such as learning how to swim through practice, right? We want our children to not just avoid the water, but to wisely learn from their fears, not to ignore the fears. The same is true with our fear of God. It is right to fear God. It's appropriate. There are plenty of reasons to fear God. But if fear is where it stays, and there isn't any development toward an embrace of Jesus Christ, an embrace of God, a love for him, like, like we would desire our ch ch children to grow into a love of swimming, then there's no difference between the inhabitants of Jericho and their fear and us. The inhabitants of Jericho feared, but they did nothing. You recognize that? They did absolutely nothing about it. Remember, Rahab wasn't the only one who feared the God of Israel. She says in verse 10, we, the Canaanites, those that lived in Jericho, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water and all that he's done, how he's went before you, what you did to the, the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained. The whole city was cowering in fear of God. Rahab's fear was, isn't unique to her. So what is unique to her? What's the difference between Rahab and all the others' fear? What is the difference between the men searching for the spies and Rahab who harbored the spies and was willing to lie because of her fear of the God of Israel? Well, the difference is this. Rahab feared God, but she also, she also hoped in God. And she was all in on her hope in God. She didn't help the spies out of sympathy for them. She didn't help the spies because she thought one of them was cute. She didn't help the spies because she had a general fear of war. No doubt this city has seen war in the past. She said, I know that the Lord has given you the land. How'd she know that? Well, in some way, in some manner, God had revealed it to her. 
Maybe it was a dream. Maybe it was a feeling. Maybe she had heard rumors in the marketplace from others saying, I have overheard that, you know, this is what's said about the Israelites. I don't know. We aren't told how she knew it. But she knew that the Lord had given the Israelites the land of Canaan. However she knew, she knew God had communicated it to her, and so she goes on to say, the Lord your God, what? The Lord your God is vicious and ferocious. The Lord your God is a bully. The Lord your God is, I hate him. No, what'd she say? She said, I know that the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, this is no general observation. This isn't her being polite towards people of a different faith. We've all been polite towards people of different beliefs than us. This is not what she's doing. This is confession and declaration. She's confessing that the Lord, Jesus, is Lord of lords. He's not just the God of the rain or of the harvest or of the sun. He's not just the God who rules over sex. These are the kind of gods that the Canaanites believed in. They're polytheistic, believing in all sorts of deities, sacrificing their children to them. Here she's acknowledging that God is the Lord of heaven and the earth. This is Rahab's confession. This is the difference between Rahab and everyone else. Fear has caused her not just to cower, not just to live in dread of judgment, but to turn and believe and embrace God. She acknowledges God as the Lord of Lords. She recognizes that there's no hope in anything or anyone else. She hopes in the Lord's mercy toward her. And that's a pretty audacious thing to do. That's, that's pretty gutsy. Remember, <clears throat> earlier in the Scripture, in Deuteronomy, God said to Israel that he was going to allow them to come in and conquer the land. And he reminded them that this is not something that you get to do because you're just so good. This is not something that you get to do because I'm just, you're just the apple of my eye and you never screw anything up. And so since you're my favorite child, I'm going to dispossess this other over here and I'm going to give it to you. No, that's not what happens. The, the Lord says to them, it was not because of your righteousness or for the upright of, uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess the land of Canaan. But you're going to dispossess them and take the land because of the wickedness of those nations whom the Lord your God is driving out from before you. And so you have this Canaanite woman hoping in God for good. And if that's not enough, she's not even the woman in Canaan who operates an orphanage is she? She's a Canaanite, and she's a prostitute. She makes an income by selling herself. She's a woman of the night. She deals in whispers and deceit, deception. By all human terms, by our, by our own terms, if we were allowed to make them most likely, if there's somebody who shouldn't hope in God for anything good, it would be this woman, a Canaanite, pagan, wrong belief, 
wrong action. And yet, this woman hopes in God. She has a fear of God, and that fear motivates her to cast her hopes onto him because what else can she do? She recognizes the judgment's coming and it's going to destroy her and all those that she loves. And knowing this, she can either resent it and seek to do everything she can to enjoy the, the momentary good favor of her people for being the one who turned over the spies, or she can look to God and hope that he might be kind to her, hope that he might be merciful to her, hope that he might do her good. What an experience it is to hope in God for good. This is where we started. I I said I want to challenge us all today to hope in God for good, not just for petty goodnesses like Greek yogurt in the refrigerator come Saturday morning, but for extraordinary goodnesses that we can't fathom, for salvation for those whom we've loved and, and prayed for for years but can't imagine it. That's the kind of hope that we should be hoping in God for. The life of the Christian begins and continues down the pathway of hope. So have you hoped in God? Some of you have hoped in God. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I, what I, where I wanted to begin actually is some of you have hoped, but it has not been in God rather. It's misplaced. It's in your own ability. You have hope, but it's hope that's rooted in your own morality, in your own reputation, in your own financial um, well-being. And none of these things are a hope that's lasting. None of these things are a hope that pass through the veil of eternity. None of these hopes will uh, be able to be checked and, and, and taken with you past the grave. This is, this, is, this is what Jesus clearly teaches when he talks about uh, the man building his, his, his house on the sand versus on the rock. He's saying that when hard things come, if your hope is in anything other than him, if your hope is, tried, is tied off to anything other than the sure and steady anchor of Jesus Christ, you are going to drift out into a catastrophic tsunami and perish. If your hope is rooted down into the sand of your wealth or your money or your education or what you like to think about yourself or, or more importantly, what other people, you think other people think about you, it will not last. It will disintegrate. It will fade. It will wash away just like sand when the tide comes in. It will be so far gone, you can't imagine how it, how it went that quickly or that far. There is a sure and certain judgment coming. That's the, the message of Scripture, not just of the Israelites to Canaan, but the judgment of God. You may not see it, but it is coming. And so Jesus and Rahab call you to place your hope in him, in Jesus Christ, in the Lord of Lords, just as this woman did. Place your hope in Jesus. There are some of you who have hope, but it's displaced, and you need to move it around. You need to abandon the empty, vain things that you've tried to lasso your hopes around that you think are going to hold you tight, and you need to cling on to Christ. 
Some of you don't have really any hope. You're sitting here, you're like the people of Canaan. Your life is filled with fear, anxiety, despair. You don't have any hope. You don't have much, if any, anticipation that God can and will show you mercy. You have no confidence that God is good to you. You, you may say it, but I'm talking about heart realities here. You might say it, mumble it, a Bible study, but you have absolutely no confidence that God is for your good. You know that the, theoretically in your mind, yeah, that, that might be true, but it's totally disconnected from the reality of your heart. It's not the way you live. You have no confidence that God is absolutely for your good and wants it. If you're bound by the guilt of your sins, if you live in fear of judgment without hope, thinking that you've done too much bad, that Jesus can, cannot or will not accept you, then you must follow the example of this Canaanite prostitute. That's why the scripture gives us this story. She's a Canaanite. God said the Canaanites were wicked. God said he was going to displace them all. God told the Israelites, when you go through, don't spare anyone. You remember that. They didn't obey, but that was what God said. And guess what? You have this Canaanite prostitute and hope against hope. God had said, don't spare anyone, and yet God is going to spare her, isn't he? And so there is hope for you. You feel, you who feel like there is no hope, you who feel the weight of despair crushing down upon you, this, this scripture this morning calls to you to place your hope in Christ and find it in him, and he promises that you will. Some of you have hoped in God, but it was momentary. It was not lasting. You mistakenly thought that hope was a gate or a checkpoint that you walked through. But hope is not a gate or a checkpoint in the Christian life. Hope is the pathway that must be walked down. You recognize that. Hope is the pathway that you must walk by faith. And so we come into a relationship with Christ by hoping him in, in him initially. But then we don't just leave hope behind and grunt it out ourselves. We continue to hope until heaven. That's why Peter talks so much about the hope we have, the great hope. We walk the pathway of hope by faith. The Lord's mercies are new every morning. This is a reality that we have to grab onto every day. Every morning, there is new manna of hope that you have to go out and gather up and live off of. The life of the Christian is a life of hope. Surely, there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. David says, and now, O Lord, what, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. This isn't a checkpoint hope that he's left behind. Day after day, trial after trial, temptation after temptation in David's life. For what do I wait? My hope is in you. David was a man who lived in hope, in expectation 
that God was going to do good to him, just as Rahab had that incredible, we don't understand how it would come to her, but it was God's work in her heart that made her recognize that there was hope, and then she acted on it. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Look at Rahab and see the hope of this Canaanite, this woman who knew virtually nothing about God, nothing of the promises of Jesus Christ, nothing about all the fulfillment of redemption in Christ and his death and resurrection and words like, you know, propitiation. She has no idea, no concept for any of those things. Look at her faith and marvel at it. But don't just stand there gaping. Don't just stand there saying, what a woman, what a woman. Recognize that you have been taught the things of God. What the Bible says, the oracles of God, the promises of God, the work of Christ, the way he came and gave his life for you is known by you. And if Rahab's hope was this great based off what she knew, your hope should be all the greater. Do you not recognize that? We look at Rahab and marvel at the hope she had when she knew nothing. And then I think it's so hard for many of us to hope in this way ourselves. Our hope should be all the greater. Our hope should be all the greater. Our hopes should be changing the world. Why do we hope for so little? There is so much to hope for in the Lord. Rahab's example <clears throat> calls to all of us in the face of judgment, in the face of trial, in the face of ongoing need, hope in God for good. So Rahab feared God, Rahab hoped in God, and finally I do want to end by speaking about um, the fact that she didn't just hope in God, hope in God, hope in God, but the fact that she acted on that hope. You recognize that. She put it all on the line because of the hope that she had. The author of Hebrews says this, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with all those who were disobedient. So you recognize in that statement, we realize that fear of God is not enough because the whole city was fearful. The whole city was in terror of God and yet God's judgment on them was that they were disobedient until the end. So we have to press through fear. We don't leave fear behind totally. We don't live in it though, a craven fear like the people of, of Jericho did. We fear God and it pushes us through to hope in God. So what do we learn from Hebrews? Rahab did not stay at the fear level and she did not merely hope without doing anything about it. She acted on the hope that God would be good to her and that's faith. James, another, the brother of Jesus, says about Rahab that she was justified by her works. Rahab acted. He, James is looking at her story, and what sticks out to her is the things that she did because of the spark of faith that God had placed in her and the hope that she reached out to Christ with. Rahab acted on her hope, and this is... He says it's faith. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish. She placed her hope in the Lord and did everything in her ability to live within that hope. 
She was all in. She was all in. How was she all in? Where do we see it in the chapter illustrated? Well, I think that it would be enough to just say that she looked at the guards and said, yeah, they're not here, they left. I mean, she put every, how can you be more all in than putting your life on the line? Is there any way? No. I mean, she probably actually put her life and her family's lives on the line. (laughs) She was all in. She sent the messengers back by a different way. She gave up. She did more than just that, though. There are a few other things in this chapter that I want to point out to illustrate how in she was. She gave up her own people in the hope of being welcomed by God into his people. You recognize that. And that's like, oh, yeah, that's the story. But you can't imagine giving something up like that. Imagine giving up. Imagine imagine having a hope that would cause you to have to move to Calcutta, like, you know, William Carey did. A hope in God that he might use you. And so you literally leave everything behind and move. This is what she did. She gave up everything, all of her people, so that she might be adopted by God in the hope that she would be adopted by God and be brought into his people. And what we see later is that God did bring in her family, and what a beautiful thing. You know, we we also see that she doesn't just obey in the big things. When you're all in, you're all in. Like, if you think, if anybody thinks they're going to be a good athlete because they go to the gym and they work on their biceps, you are a fool. Right? You think you're going to be a good athlete? You're going to be accomplished at your sport because, and you're all in because you got these big guns up here and you're, hmm, hmm. It's crazy. You're stupid. If you're all in, you might do some of that, but you're, You're working your legs, you're working your agility, you're working your cardio, you're all in. It's affecting all of you. You know, so many of us as Christians want to think that, oh yeah, we're all in. We did all the things that were necessary, the big things. But you know what? The two spies tell her, if you want to be saved, here's this piece of scarlet cord put it up there in the window. And guess what? She does it. What a little stupid thing. I mean, I'm not saying it's stupid. There's some imagery there, Passover, which we're not getting into. But, yeah, come on, man. It's like a red cord, you know? Hang it in the window. She already lied. She, she covered for him. She did the big thing. But she also does the small thing faithfully. And she doesn't go beyond what they tell her to do. She does the big things and the small things, the things that you may think are the necessary things and the things that you may think are, aren't so necessary. Those are just the little, you know, things afterwards that, you know, it's kind of good if you can do them, but if you can't quite, no. She was all in, right? All in on her hope. She was all in. She was all in not just for herself but for her family. I already mentioned that. She's like, hey, Not just for me. She actually doesn't ask for herself to be saved. She asks for her father's house to be saved. It's not good enough for her to save her. She she wants what she has for everyone. If you're all into something, I mean, seriously, you know anybody who sells life insurance? 
They're all in on it and they want it for not just them, but for you and for you and for you and for you, right? They're, they want everyone they know to be all in on this thing. Listen, if, you, if you're all in on something, you want it for those that you love, right? If you're all in on something, dads, think even about like hobbies. If you're all in on a hobby, what dad doesn't want his kids to take up that hobby? Most likely they won't, and you're not going to be humble enough to admit that you want them to be into it with you, but it's a desire of your heart, right? If you're all into something, you want it for those around you. This was true with Rahab. She wanted it for family. In the end, you know, in a future chapter, Joshua's going to come and march around the wall, and they're going to blow the trumpets, and the walls are going to come down. And amazingly, fantastically, miraculously, the section of wall that she lived in isn't going to fall. It's going to remain standing. And she doesn't go to Joshua and ask Joshua if she can uh, just stay there and have it inhabit that either. You need to recognize that. She was all in with God's people. This is not a save me so that I can do my thing here in my remnant of the wall after you guys do what you need to do. You recognize that? She's all in and she's completely in. She wants to be a part of God's people. She assimilates right in. Her hope, she acts on her hope. She's all in on her hope. She puts it all on the line. She, she reminds me of Peter saying, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You, or I think of David saying, you are my Lord. There is no good besides you. Or, or Mary Magdalene who, who comes to Jesus and pours it all at his feet. Or the, the woman in the temple who puts in her last cent to the temple. She is all, this is... This is Rahab. She's all in. She hoped in God for something that to human understanding would have seemed absolutely absurd. A Canaanite prostitute, traitor, liar, being received into the family of God by the great mercy and love of God. So I want to ask you, do you have this kind of hope? Do you have this kind of hope? And if you say you have that kind of hope, what I want to ask you is, are you staying back, waiting for things that you hope for to just simply come to pass, to materialize on their own? Are you waiting for them to just come a knocking at your door without you doing anything about it? Maybe you hope for something good, but do nothing in line with that hope. You must hope as Rahab hoped, and you must throw yourself into it. You know, if your high school basketball team has the hope of making the playoffs and even maybe winning a championship, you're not going to sit back and think about that possibility. The hope is going to motivate you toward the pursuit of that becoming a reality. And I'm not saying that we achieve everything of our own work of course, God is the one who did all of this. But we must hope in a great God and then live in accordance with that hope. We must be all in. We must put our lives on the line in line with that hope. So will you throw yourself at hope for things that are so vibrant in color you can't have, imagine them ever coming true in this life? A better marriage, 
the defeat of a particular sin that has plagued you for a very long time, maybe the salvation of a child or a family member. Maybe it's for salvation yourself. Do you hope that God will be merciful? If you, if you do, then I'd say then throw yourself at that hope. Don't sit back and think that somehow it will inevitably happen or be dispensed. Rahab would have been killed along with the rest of her city if she had done that. Act on the hope that you have. Run after that hope with everything you have. If you do this, then you will find the mercy that Rahab found. Jesus says, those who pursue me, I will not turn back. Your hope will be realized. To find what Rahab found, you need to be all in. You must hope in God and give yourself to the pursuit of that hope with everything that you are. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious promise of Scripture that gives us yourself as our hope, that gives us eternity with you as our hope, and every imaginable blessing that is subservient to that, even things like the inheritance of Christ being shared with us. What a hope we have. And so we have no we have no excuse. We can't claim naivety just like Rahab. We can't say we didn't know. You've told us it, Lord. And so we pray that we'd have the boldness, the faith, to live in line, to, to hope big in you and to live in line with that hope, that we wouldn't be hypocrites, that we wouldn't be religious men and women that are dead, but that we would live... Uh, with great hope and expectation, and then act upon it, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.